thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the completion, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Although I probably shouldn't have said completion, I probably should have said fulfillment. Uh, it's definitely the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was designed to bring to mankind. And I decided, because we are on at the point of the year with a very, very special feast day, and that's an understatement, Corpus Christi which in some ways is the perfect fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church because it is the feast day that celebrates the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ made available to us at every holy sacrifice of the Mass. So I want to make that the theme for today's show. Uh, it's um, We're kind of in between two celebrations of it because if one goes to the traditional Tridentine rite, the Latin Mass, it would have been on Thursday two days ago. And of course, uh, the more normal Novus Ordo Masses, it's tomorrow, Sunday. So I definitely want to give honor and glory to the feast day. So here's my plan for today. It's going to be twofold. I'm going to, I guess, begin today's show by reading a short description of the feast day from Dom Geringer's Liturgical Year. I have uh, read from that work before. It's uh, from the beginning of the 20th century, probably about the 1920s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he was a Benedictine monk who went through the liturgical year on the Catholic calendar and made reflections about the various feast days, but also about the rhythm of the year itself. And he points out that it is not a coincidence that we've had this very beautiful sequence of three feast days in a row of Pentecost celebrating the descent of the Holy Spirit and then the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity uh, celebrating the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and if I may put in a good word for, for Abba it's really the only feast day that God the Father has on the calendar and then just five days later the Feast of Corpus Christi which is the uh, culmination, one could say, of the descent of the Most Holy Trinity into mankind in this in this uh, eternally perpetuated way through the Eucharist. So before I tie myself in theological knots anymore, let me just read a short passage from uh, Dom Geringer about the Feast of Corpus Christi. Oh, and by the way, this is a live uh, call-in program. So if you wish to call in here, the number is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Glory be to thee, O Holy Spirit. Thy reign over the church has but just begun this year of grace, and thou art giving us light whereby to understand the divine decrees. The day of thy Pentecost brought us a new law, a law where all is brightness, and it was given to us in place of that old one of shadows and types. The pedagogue who schooled the infant world for the knowledge of truth has been dismissed. 
Light has shone upon us through the preaching of the apostles, and the children of light set free, knowing God and known by him, are daily leaving behind them the weak and needy elements of early childhood. So you see here, Dom Geringer is actually already painting the descent of the Catholic liturgical year against the backdrop of the replacement of Judaism, which he is calling a pedagogue. That is, it was a kind of a training program to bring man up to the point where he could receive the full revelation of the Catholic faith. Continuing. Scarcely, O Divine Spirit, was completed the triumphant octave, wherein the Church celebrated thy coming, and her own birth, which that coming brought about, when all eager for the fulfillment of thy mission of bringing to the bride's mind the things taught to her by her spouse, thou showed her the divine and radiant mystery of the Trinity, that not only her faith might acknowledge, but her adoration and her praise might also worship it, and she and her children find their happiness in its contemplation and love. But that first of the great mysteries of our faith, the unsearchable dogma of the Trinity, does not represent the whole richness of Christian revelation. Thou, O blessed Spirit, hastens to complete our instruction and widen the horizon of our faith. The knowledge you have given us of the essence and the life of the Godhead was to be followed and completed by that of his external works and the relations which God has vouchsafed to establish between himself and us. In this very week when we begin under thy direction to contemplate the precious gifts left us by Jesus when he ascended on high, on this first Thursday, which reminds us of that holiest of all Thursdays, our Lord's Supper, thou, O divine Spirit, brings before our delighted vision the admirable sacrament, which is the compendium of the works of God, one in essence and three in persons, the adorable Eucharist, which is the divine memorial of the wonderful things achieved by the united operation of omnipotence, wisdom, and love. The most holy Eucharist contains within itself the whole plan of God. With reference to this world, it shows how all the previous ages have been gradually developing the divine intentions which were formed by infinite love and by that same love carried out to the end, yea, to the furthest extremity here below, that is, to itself. For the Eucharist is the crowning of all the antecedent acts done by God in favor of his creatures. The Eucharist implies them all, it explains all. Man's aspirations for union with God, aspirations which are above his own nature, and yet so interwoven with it as to form one inseparable life, can have but one possible cause, and that is God himself, God who is the author of that being called man. None but God has formed the immense capaciousness of man's heart, and none but God is willing or able to fill it. I, I hope you agree with me how, how beautiful that was, that God gave us a almost unfillable yearning for him in our hearts, which he has made fillable through the gift of the Most Holy Eucharist. Um, so let me, um, with that little introduction, the next element of this show that I was planning to go into was uh, actually it's quite related to last week's show. Last week's show, I talked about the so-called Enlightenment, 
that revolution that came about in the spirit of the time, so to speak, in the late 18th century and the 19th century, when science came in its, into its own. There's nothing wrong with science. I wouldn't be here at the other end of this microphone without science. But the presumptuousness of some of the scientists to say that only science provides the truth and nothing that can't be established by the experimental method can be true. And therefore, the so-called enlightenment, which is miscalled the enlightenment, I like to call it the endarkenment, because it actually darkened men's minds, it didn't lighten men's minds. In any case, the endarkenment basically cast a huge veil over revealed truths, the revealed truths of the Catholic faith, and even the existence of the supernatural world, the existence of eternal life, the existence of miracles and so forth, were to a large extent kind of thrown out the window in this pseudoscientific attitude that, you know, if we can't create it in a laboratory, if we can't measure it, if we can't repeat it at will, we can't say that it exists. As a matter of fact, there's a philosophy that says that explicitly. It's called logical positivism, which basically says you can't claim anything is true if you can't create it uh, repeatedly in under kind of laboratory conditions. Um, of course, that's ridiculous. But it's not only ridiculous, it's actually anti-scientific because the heart of science in its soul, so to speak, is the, the premise of science is that you are tied to the data. You look at the evidence. You rely on the evidence. You look at the evidence and you try to figure out the evidence and what it's telling you. And you try to develop a theory that can explain what you seek, that can explain the evidence. And if it's successful in explaining the evidence, you can hold on to that theory and give it more and more weight as it, it is uh, confirmed by more and more evidence. But if it's totally unable to explain the evidence, I'm afraid you have to throw away that theory or that hypothesis and look for one that can explain the evidence. Well, what's this got to do with Corpus Christi? It's got a lot to do with Corpus Christi because God has given us this incredible favor in our day not only of physically verifiable miracles, but of a whole family of physically verifiable miracles that confirm not only the truths of the Catholic faith, but specifically that confirm the truth of the Eucharist. So that's what I'm going to spend the rest of the show on. Scientific evidence for transubstantiation at Mass in the Eucharist. Now, I hope you are already familiar with some of the uh, physical miracles which have taken place through the Eucharist, through uh, transubstantiation, I should say. Um, if you're not, you might be a little bit scandalized by this. And, and if you're one of our beloved Protestant listeners, you may be scandalized by this. But again, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm just trying to be scientific and say, let's look at the evidence and let's consider what theories might explain the evidence. So let's look at the evidence. Now, um, um, I think, okay, I'll just go into uh, a Eucharistic miracle from 1996, okay, 1996, 24 years ago. Um, I will later in the show probably be talking about the miracle of Lanciano, which was in the Middle Ages, and of course one could claim that 
oh, all kinds of things that people were superstitious, that they believed anything, that it was a fraud, and so forth. There are reasons why you can't really claim that, but and, you know, something that happened 500 years ago can be in a kind of a shadow of doubt or a cloud of doubt. But we're talking about something that happened in our own day, subjected to the full range of scientific exploration. That is something that happened on August 18, 1996. So I will read a brief account of the Eucharistic miracle and of the um, scientific evidence, basically the uh, um, transubstantiated host was put under a host of scientific examination and was found to be exactly what the church claims it would be, which was, well, you'll see, I won't jump ahead of myself. On August 18, 1996, Father Alejandro Pazet celebrated the Mass in the church in the center of the commercial district in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He had finished distributing Holy Communion when a woman alerted him that someone had discarded a host in the back of the church. Going to the spot, the priest found the defiled host. He placed it in a little container of water that he then placed in the tabernacle of the chapel of the Blessed Sacrament. On Monday, August 26, on opening the tabernacle, he saw to his great astonishment that the host had become a bloody object. He informed Bishop Jorge Bergoglio, you might recognize that name, that is our current uh, Pope Francis, he was the Bishop of, Arge of Buenos Aires at the time, so the priest informed Bishop Jorge Bergoglio, the auxiliary bishop, um, and the future Pope, who gave instructions to have the transformed host be professionally photographed. The photographs, taken on September 6, 1996, clearly show that the host had become a piece of bloody flesh and had significantly grown in size. For three years it remained in the tabernacle, and the entire matter was kept secret. But after observing that the host suffered no visible decomposition, Bishop Bergoglio decided to have it submitted to scientific analysis. On October 1999, analysis began on samples of the host. This analysis led to the declaration in 2005 by Dr. Frederick Zugiba, an expert in cardiology and forensic pathology. Quote, The analyzed material is a fragment of the heart muscle found in the wall of the left ventricle close to the valves. This muscle is responsible for the contraction of the heart. The left cardiac ventricle pumps blood to all parts of the body. The heart muscle is in, is in an inflamed state and contains a large number of white blood cells. This indicates that the heart was alive at the time the sample was taken. You're following this? This indicates that the heart was alive at the time that the host was transubstantiated. Um, this indicates that the heart was alive at the time the sample was taken. I affirm that the heart was alive since white blood cells die outside a living organism. They require a living organism to sustain them. Thus, their presence indicates that the heart was alive when the sample was taken. What is more, these white blood cells had penetrated the tissue, which further indicates that the heart had been under severe stress 
as though the owner had been beaten severely about the chest. So this is what a forensic pathologist was able to observe from what he thought was a piece of bloody heart muscle tissue, the origin of which was a host which had been transubstantiated during a Catholic Mass. Continuing with this uh, scientific account, two Australians, the journalist Mike Willisey and the lawyer Ron Tesoriero, witnessed these tests. After the doctor had submitted his findings, he was informed that the substance from which the sample had been taken dated from 1996. Dr. Zagiba asked, You have to explain one thing to me. If the sample came from a dead person, how could it be that while I was examining it, the cells of the sample were moving and pulsating? If the heart came from someone who died in 1996, how could it still be alive? in 1999 when he examined it. Only then did Mike Willisey explain to Dr. Zugiba that the analyzed sample came from a consecrated host that had mysteriously transformed into bloody human flesh. Stunned by this information, the doctor replied, How and why can a consecrated host change its nature and become living human flesh and blood? This will remain an inexplicable, inexplicable mystery to science, a mystery totally beyond her competence. Amen, an honest scientist. This will remain an inexplicable mystery to science, a mystery totally beyond her competence. Fortunately, we have a very good theory, not only about how this happens, it was probably explained most fully by St. Thomas Aquinas. We'll be hearing more from him about midway through the show, um, how the transubstantiation takes place and how the form, the external form, I may not have this precisely, excuse me if I don't have it right. My understanding is that the external form of the bread and wine usually retains that external form that it started out with but that the substance is transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ. Once in a great while, God allows that miracle, which takes place at every Mass, actually the greater part of the miracle takes place at every Mass, because the transubstantiation takes place at every Mass, but once every great while, God allows the more superficial aspect of the miracle, that is, that the that form, the appearance, to change also. Okay, <clears throat> now let me turn to that uh, medieval, I actually overstated the case, the Lanciano miracle isn't uh, medieval, it's, it's, it took place in the 8th century, which is pre-medieval. But I will give a very brief account of the Lanciano miracle, because um, there's a punchline at the end of it that I want to get to. In Lanciano, that's a town in Italy, in the Abruzzo region of Italy, a similar miracle took place around 750, the year 750, in other words, about 1300 years ago. The miracle remains visible for us today. The host became flesh and the wine became blood, and they have remained perfectly intact for more than 12 centuries. 
As an aside, I'll say that I have visited the Eucharistic Miracle at Lanciano and was able to get pretty up close to it, to about two feet away from the glass reliquary where the miracle is kept. And it's really there. Uh, the host became flesh and the wine became blood and they remained perfectly intact for more than 12 centuries. In 1970, the Archbishop of Lanciano and the Provincial Superior of the Conventual Franciscans at Abruzzo, with permission from Rome, asked Professor Eduardo Linoli, the director of the hospital in Arezzo, to conduct a thorough scientific examination of the relics from the miracle that had occurred 12 centuries before. On March 4, 1971, the professor presented his conclusions. Number one, the miraculous flesh came from the muscular striated tissue of the myocardium, that is heart. Number two, the miraculous blood is real blood as indisputably proven by chromatographic analysis. Number three, the flesh and the blood are human and immuno in immunological tests show that both belong to the blood type AB, the same blood type as that of the man on the Shroud of Turin and the type most characteristic of Middle Eastern populations. Number four, the proteins in the blood are distributed in the identical percentages found in normal, fresh human blood. Number five, no histological analysis found any trace of salt infiltrations or preservative substances used at the time for the purpose of embalming. Let us note again that when liquefied, the Eucharistic blood of Lanciano, which is normally dried, retains all its chemical and physical properties without deteriorating in any manner whatsoever, whereas normally, 15 minutes after ordinary human blood is drawn, all the biological activities cease irreversibly. So, the miracle actually continues. The miracle continues. When the blood liquefies, that is in itself a miracle. Because it can't do that. It can't do that. And it certainly can't do that without any preservatives in it. Uh, continuing with this uh, scientific report, the medical report aroused great interest in the scientific world. In 1973, the Chief Advisory Board of the World Health Organization appointed a scientific commission to verify Professor Linoli's conclusions. Their work lasted 15 months and 500 examinations were carried out. The commission declared that it was living tissue showing all the clinical reactions found in living beings. Since the 8th century, the flesh and blood of Lanciano have remained as if they had just been taken that very day from a living being. The summary of the commission's work published in New York and Geneva in December 1976 acknowledged that science, aware of its, limit, aware of its limits, was confronted with the impossibility of providing an explanation. Praise God, we have an explanation. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it, that we have an explanation? Okay. Okay, where are we now? Um, we are coming up on the halfway point. We're not at the halfway point yet. But I think what I'll do is maybe I'll take the short musical break a little bit early. I'll, I'll talk for another couple of minutes and then uh, provide the musical break. And the musical break, maybe what I'll do is actually 
use the musical break as a more substantive part of the program because obviously this program is a celebration of the Eucharist, a celebration of the real presence in the Eucharist. And so for a musical break, I have uh, chosen uh, a hymn. It's actually part of the mass text in the, in the Latin mass for the feast of Corpus Christi. It is, um, the sequence is Pangue Lingua, Gloriosi, it's, it's a hymn of praise to the Most Blessed Sacrament written by St. Thomas Aquinas. And it goes through some of the theology of the Most Blessed Sacrament. So maybe what I will do is I will read uh, some of the text uh, in translation in English. Um, these Latin sequences, uh, if I may say so, don't translate too well in the sense that they have a very beautiful, they have a tremendous poetic beauty in the original Latin, which is impossible to maintain in translation to English because of the um, nature of, frankly, of, of the Latin language and of the Latin grammar. They can do things making it very, very compact and tight and poetic, and by the time you add enough words to express the same thought in English, it gets a little bit um, watered down. However, uh, I will just read some of the verses. See today before us laid the life, the living and life-giving bread, theme for praise and joy profound. The same which at the sacred table was by our incarnate Lord given to his apostles around. Let the praise be loud and high, sweet and tranquil be the joy felt today in every breast. On this festival divine which records the origin of the glorious Eucharist. On this table of the King, our new Paschal offering brings to end the old and right. Here, for empty shadows fled, is reality instead. Here, instead of darkness, light. His own act, at supper seated, Christ ordained to be repeated in his memory divine. Wherefore now, with adoration, we, the host of our salvation, Consecrate from bread and wine. Here what holy church maintaineth that the bread its substance changes, into flesh the wine to blood. Does it pass thy comprehending? Faith, the law of sight transcending, leaps to things not understood. Here beneath these signs are hidden priceless things, to sense forbidden. Signs, not things, are all we see. Flesh from bread, and blood from wine, yet it's Christ in either sign, all entire confessed to be. They who of him here partake, sever not, nor rend, nor break, but entire their Lord receive. Whether one or thousands eat, all receive the selfsame meat, nor the less for others leave. Both the wicked and the good eat of this celestial food, but with ends how opposite. Here it is to life, there it is to death, the same yet issuing to each in a difference infinite. That's a reference to the fact that St. Paul already says that if you eat the flesh of Christ unworthily, rather than bringing you life, it brings you illness and death. Continuing with the uh, sequence nor a single doubt retain when they break the host in twain, 
but that in each part remains what was in the whole before. Since the simple sign alone suffers change in state or form, the signified remaining one and the same forevermore. Behold the bread of angels for us pilgrims' food and token of the promise by Christ spoken, children's meat to dogs denied. Shown in Isaac's dedication, in the manna's preparation, in the paschal immolation, in old types pre-signified. I'll just comment on that because that's one of the themes of the show. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is going through the prefigurements of the Eucharist in the Old Testament in Judaism, and he points out that Isaac's dedication was a prefigurement of Christ's sacrifice. The manna's preparation, the miraculous bread from heaven in the wilderness given to the Jews, was a prefigurement of the Eucharist. The paschal immolation, that is the paschal lamb that was sacrificed every year, was of course a prefigurement of the Eucharist. So shown in Isaac's dedication, in the manna's preparation, in the paschal immolation, in old types, pre-signified. Jesus, shepherd of the sheep, thou thy flock in safety keep. Living bread, thy life supply, strengthen us or else we die. Fill us with celestial grace. Thou who feedest us below, source of all we have or know, grant that with thy saints above, sitting at the feast of love, we may see thee face to face. Amen. Alleluia. Amen. Alleluia. I could say that over and over again, but instead let me play a very beautiful Gregorian chant of the uh, sequence that I just read. So here goes. Angelingua gloriosi, corporis misterium, sanguinisque preziosi, quemimundi preziosi, fructus ventris generosi,
can't imagine a more beautiful rendition of that sequence. Uh, that was a uh, small group of religious that called themselves uh, Harpa Dei. That's Latin for the Harp of God. H-A-R-P-A, new word D-E-I. And the reason I'm spelling it is if you like their music, um, it's very, very spiritual, needless to say. They're extremely prayerful, contemplative community. Um, they have a channel on YouTube with a lot of their music. Their music is, of course, for free by and large. They're they're religious, so you if you go to YouTube and just uh, type in Arpa Dei chant, you can find, including this piece, by the way, that they just recorded about two days ago for the feast of Corpus Christi. So it's all the more appropriate that I'm playing it today. So, while I still have time, I want to read yet another scientifically verified. Okay, if you're going to have a scientific attitude, you've got to start with the data. You've got to make your theory fit the data. You're not allowed to make the data fit your theory, okay? So, if your theory is miracles can't happen, you know, the, the mass is just a memorial and so forth, if that's your theory, you're going to have to change it when you come across this evidence. You're not allowed, you're not allowed to throw away evidence in order to preserve your theory. It's the other way around. You have to throw away your theory if the evidence contradicts it. G.K. Chesterton is a wonderful Christian apologist of the beginning of the first half of the 20th century. He has this wonderful quote, rightly or wrongly, those who believe in miracles believe in them on the basis of the evidence. Rightly or wrongly, those who do not believe in miracles refuse to believe in them on the basis of faith. Get it? Anyway, so God, I think because of our uh, kind of scientific attitude today, has been particularly generous in giving us these physical proofs of the Catholic faith, um, especially in our day. 
Uh, let me actually read a short quote from Pope Francis, uh, just because it's so apropos, just because it just basically repeats what I just said. It's from uh, the encyclical Lumen Fidei from 2013. In modernity, that means in our times, the light of faith that might have been considered sufficient for societies of old was felt to be of no use for new times, for a humanity come of age, proud of its rationality and anxious to explore the future in novel ways. Faith thus appeared to some as an illusory light preventing mankind from boldly setting out in quest of knowledge. Um, faith was thus understood either as a leap in the dark to be taken in the absence of light, driven by blind emotion, or as a subjective light, capable perhaps of warming the heart and bringing personal consolation, but not something which could be proposed to others as an objective and shared light which points the way. Okay, so in the absence of us being able to present faith as an objective and shared light which points the way, God has given us these physical miracles which are an objective and shared light which point the way and in fact point the exact same way that Catholic dogma points. It points to the very same truth. There's only one truth. There's only one truth. Faith and reason cannot contradict each other because faith is a, a description of the truth, and reason is a description of the truth. We have an encyclical by Pope John Paul II about exactly that, right? Fides ad ratio, faith and reason. However, I better get to the, the um, last of these um, Eucharistic miracles that I want to mention or want to describe on today's show. So let me turn to that. This is from 2008, okay? So it's even from 12 years more recent than the one I said at the beginning of the show, 2008. We've got, in this, in this one, we not only have all of forensic science applied to the miracle, but we even have electron microscopy applied to the miracle. So hang on to your hats and, and just listen. In confirmation of the faith of the church, the Lord wished to give the world a new proof of his love with another Eucharistic miracle in 2008 a miracle with features quite similar to those of the miracle of Buenos Aires. On October 12th of that year, Father, uh, you'll have to forgive me, my Polish pronunciation is non-existent, Father Jacek Ingelowicz celebrated Mass at the Church of St. Anthony of Padua in Sukolka, Poland, in the presence of 200 people. During the distribution of communion, a host fell to the ground, Father Jacek, picked it up and placed it in a small silver liturgical vessel filled with water so that the host would dissolve and put it in a safe in the sacristy. For after a host is completely dissolved, the body of Christ is no longer present and it can be disposed of in the earth. Informed by Father Jacek, Father Stanislaw Niedzisko, the pastor, left the vessel in the safe for two weeks. He then observed that not only had the host not dissolved in the water, but a shape resembling a blood stain had appeared. Stunned, I did not know what to think of it, Father Stanislaw later stated. My hands were trembling when I closed the safe again. I could hardly speak. He decided to refer the matter to the Archbishop Edward Ozorowski, the Metropolitan of Bialystok, the neighboring city. When the Archbishop came to Sokolka, he was shown the host which had been placed on a corporal. On the host he saw not only a blood stain, but something that resembled an organic 
material. On January 5, 2009, the bishop asked two professors of medicine at the University of Bialystok, Maria Elizabeth Sobanyevich Latoshka and Stanislaw Sokolsky, to conduct an analysis of a fragment of the host. Both of the researchers had worked in the field of histopathology for over 30 years. Father Andrei Krakarko, the Chancellor of the Metropolitan Curie of Bialystok, gave each of the experts a sample of the host. The study was conducted at the university's Institute of Pathology. When the samples were removed, the fragment of the host that remained connected to the tissue stayed closely united with the tissue to be analyzed without having lost any of its whiteness. I'm going to repeat that. When the samples were removed, the fragment of the host that remained connected to the tissue, in other words, the part of the host that still resembled wafer, that still resembled the bread, that was the appearance of the host before consecration, the fragment of the host that still resembled a host remained connected to the tissue, in other words, the part of the host that had turned into human tissue. Um, the, the fragment of the host that resembled the host remained connected to the human tissue, closely united with the tissue to be analyzed, although it had not lost any of its whiteness. After working separately, the two specialists arrived at the same conclusion. Whatever they had been given came from human heart muscle tissue that was still alive but in agony. Professor Kokoska stated that he had observed the presence of, quote, of many typical biomorphological indicators of heart muscle tissue, close quote, as well as visible damage in the form of tiny ruptures to fibers of the tissue. He added, quote, such changes can be observed only in living fibers, and they show evidence of rapid spasms of the heart muscle in the period just before death, close quote. The other professor confirmed this is living heart muscle tissue. On further reflection, she was astonished at the fact that the tissue remained alive after having been separated from the organism of which it was an integral part. It was a, quote, extraordinary phenomenon, close quote. As she explained, quote, the host remained submerged in water for a long time and then was left on the corporal. Therefore, the tissue should have undergone the process of asphyxia, that is, uh, dying out. But we did not observe any such changes during our tests. According to the current state of knowledge in biology, in biology we cannot explain this phenomenon scientifically. Also very intrigued by the way the heart tissue was connected to the consecrated host, she declared that, quote, this extraordinary phenomenon of interabsorption of the heart muscle tissue with the host, observed under the microscope and also by electron microscopy, proves that no human manipulation of the sample could have taken place. In fact, the structure of the myocardial fibers and the structure of the bread were so tightly bound that no human intervention could have caused it. That is from Professor Sobyanik Lachoska's statement in the report on the miracle. Moreover, the blood from the host 
have the same characteristics of the blood from the Shroud of Turin and the Miracle of Lanciano. Okay, skeptics, put that in your pipe and smoke it. What do you do with that evidence? What do you do with all of that scientific evidence? Do you say, what, that the Catholic Church bribed these scientists to, to make up these reports? I mean, it really strains credulity how one would have to tie oneself in knots to explain away the data, the scientific data, the scientific evidence. You can see here, you can see here a kind of a pseudoscientific fallacy, which is that um, if one remains faithful to the evidence, one is being scientific. Repeatability per se, repeatability should not be considered part of the scientific method in that sense. Because the problem with considering repeatability to be a necessary component of the scientific method, in other words, it's only scientifically proven if you can repeat it at will, is that by definition, repeatability cannot be achieved if you have free will in the equation. In other words, if you ask me to give $100 to a cause, I might give that $100 today and not give it next week. I have free will. I may change my mind in the meantime. Um, anything that requires the free will of a person, of a human being, or of an angel, or of God, is not reproducible at will. Unless, I mean, because it won't be reproduced unless the person who has the free will decides to reproduce it, to do it over again. Now, it's in the nature of divine miracles, of course, that God does, actually, I have to watch myself, there's only one divine miracle that God binds himself to doing willy-nilly, to doing whether he wants to or not, to doing every single time. And that is actually transubstantiation. That's the consecration of the host at Mass. God has promised to do that every single time, no matter what state of sin the priest is in, no matter how sacrilegious or irreverent the circumstances of the Mass are. He's promised to do that automatically, so to speak. But that's the only miracle he's promised to do automatically. Uh, a miraculous healing. I, I hope we all know people who have had miraculous healings, even from from cancer, that that just disappeared inexplicably from, from one hour to the next. But, but God doesn't guarantee doing that every time somebody asks, right? Um, angels, if angels intervene in human affairs, they don't guarantee doing the same thing every time whenever they're asked. And as I said, you and I don't guarantee having the same response. Somebody could ask me a, for a favor this morning when I'm in a good mood, and I say, sure. Or tomorrow morning when I've had a terrible night and I'm in a crabby mood, and I say, no way. It's in the nature of free will that you can't repeat you know, you can't make something arbitrarily repeatable. And since it is, anything having to do with miracles is, of course, a subject or to the free will of God or to the free will of angels, or even, God forbid, to the free will of demons, it's not going to be repeatable at will. The other, the other criteria for um, scientific verifiability, however, hold. And we have these Eucharistic miracles that I've described I mean, what more scientific evidence could you ask for? You have the 
verifiable physical substance. You have that substance examined under microscope, examined under electron microscopy, examined by forensic pathologists with over 30 years experience each who were not told where it came from, who were not told beforehand what it was, who came to the exact same conclusion that it was living heart tissue, heart muscle that came from a human being who that was re removed while that person was still alive in a state of great agony just before death. Basta. That should be enough. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to celebrate this uh, beautiful Feast of Corpus Christi, which is a celebration of exactly this, the celebration of the transubstantiation of the wafer that is, is consecrated on mass into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the second person in the most holy trinity at every Catholic mass. So uh, my heart bleeds, figuratively speaking, not literally speaking, like we just saw that Jesus' heart bleeds, but figuratively speaking for any of you who are still deprived of the Eucharist because you might be living in places where the Eucharist is not being made freely available. I hope this at least brings you uh, some kind of a um, echo of a spiritual communion. And I pray most fervently that um, the, the most holy sacrifice of the Mass and the availability of the Eucharist become um, ubiquitous, become uh, you know very widely available very, very soon now that the um, apparent uh, panic around the uh, pandemic has subsided, uh, the, the conditions that brought about that un unwanted, unwilling Eucharistic fast seem to have now subsided. However, rather than babble, let me um, return to the theme of the show. I, we only have a couple of minutes before I have to close. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play uh, an English language chant of that uh, hymn, that sequence from the liturgy for Corpus Christi. I played a, a beautiful Gregorian chant in Latin of it during the halfway break. I will play a shorter English version, which isn't nearly as uh, beautifully sung, but it's, you, you'll be able to understand the words. And then I will close the show by going back to that beautiful Gregorian chant by Harpa Dei. So uh, with that, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure I'll come back to say goodbye. Depends on how long these chants last. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. Now first that chant in English and then that chant again in Latin. So here goes. Sing my tongue the Savior's glory, of his flesh the mystery sing, of the blood all price exceeding, shed by our immortal King, destined for the world's redemption, from a noble womb to spring. Of a pure and spotless virgin, born for us on earth below. He as man with man conversing, 
stayed the seeds of truth to sow. Then he closed in solemn order, wondrously his life of woe. On the night of that last supper, seated with his chosen band, he the paschal victim eating, first fulfills the law's command. Then as food to his apostles, gives himself with his own hand. Word made flesh the bread of nature, by his word to flesh he turns. Wine into his blood he changes, what though sense no change discerns. Only be the heart in earnest, faith her lesson quickly learns. Down in adoration falling, lo, the sacred host we hail. Lower ancient forms departing, newer rites of grace prevail. Faith for all defects supplying, where the feeble senses fail. To the everlasting Father, and the Son who reigns on high, with the Holy Ghost proceeding forth from each eternally, be salvation, honor, blessing, might, and endless majesty. Amen. Pangelingua gloriosi Sanguinisque preziosi, quemimundi precium, fructus ventris generosi, rex efurit
Thank you. 